Hello. Oh no, you immediately froze. <laughs> I know it's not good. It just keeps doing it. Your you internet can't. connection is unstable. I am aware. No shit. <laughs> um well hi buddy happy golden anniversary it's our golden anniversary yep I'm sorry I didn't get you anything (laughs) I didn't get you anything either don't worry about it good that's why that's why we've been married so long (laughs) we just get each other I forgot our anniversary I'm sorry sleep on the couch yeah you better um on my grandparents' golden wedding anniversary, my each um, each of their children's families was designated a particular color to wear, and then we took professional photos. So, like my family wore all red, like my aunt Kathy's family wore all blue or whatever. That was probably the whitest thing I've ever participated in. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Top 10, for sure. (laughs) I've participated in some pretty white things, but that's pretty white. It's up there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. What's what's the whitest thing you've ever participated in? Um, Off the top of my head, uh, there was a time that we were sitting outside and it was hot um, and we wanted to cool off. Mm -hmm. And so... We sat a fan on top of a lawnmower and hooked the fan up to a truck's battery to power it to cool (laughs) us off. I don't know if that's like a super white thing. That's like a super redneck thing. I think they're related. (laughs) Yeah. My family Um, isn't like the prim and proper, we have live, laugh, love signs kind of white. My mm -hmm. family is the crush a beer against their forehead kind (laughs) of Yeah, I would say that my my mom's side is the former and my dad's side is more of the latter. (laughs) Variety. Right, and the mom's side was the one with the matching family (laughs) photos. So (laughs) yeah, my dad's side is the one that has like themed parties for my grandpa's birthday, which Mm -hmm. vary from like, actually, we've had redneck themed parties before. Um, That's appropriation of my culture, Sarah. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> oh no! Um, I am not a costume. <laughs> my culture is not a costume. <laughs> oh my god! Um, I would like to take this. I would like to use my platform to apologize for all the redneck parties that I've participated in, that I've dressed up for. on theme I went to one in college it was the first party I ever went to my roommate uh dragged me to it and Mm -hmm. everybody was dressed up like white trash and I'm Mm -hmm. like you all guys you just look like more expensive versions of the people I went to school with right because they're probably wearing like brand new flannels yeah and like like, really fancy boots that don't have like a lick of mud on them (laughs) right what's going on yeah I could see that none of your makes makeup is drugstore what's happening here (laughs) right wearing like Sephora makeup not like CVS um 
Yeah, we've got a lot of cultures in America. Even just white America has a lot of different subcultures. Yeah. You wouldn't think so, but we are. Well, your hair looks great. Thank you. For those of you who can't see me, I chopped all of my hair off. Normally, Mm -hmm. I have a reason for why I chop it off. This time, it was that um, I don't know what I'm doing with my life, and I wanted to reflect that um, (laughs) with my hair. (laughs) I love to chop my hair off after a big event. That's normally what I do, but there are no big events in my future. There are none. It's like for uh, 40 years, this big sea of I don't know what's going to happen. So it's like, Mm -hmm. why not just chop it off to commemorate the fact I'm having an ongoing everyday meltdown about that fact. (laughs) An ongoing menti bee about (laughs) (laughs) the rest of your life. I think I read some kind of like astrological prediction that was about like specifically Scorpio and Taurus suns and moons and how like the next 18 months are going to be transformative. So there's that. Buy my novel. Yeah. That would be nice. Yeah, I'll buy it. I'll buy it right now. How much? Name your price. (laughs) 20 cents. I have $25. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) that'll buy a case of beer (laughs) to to crush against your skull. (laughs) Jesus, we should probably get started before we chase off the remainder of our audience. I mean... We have new listeners in like I think two different African countries, so this should be a real hoot for the <laughs> for them. <laughs> yeah, let's get started. Uh, today we're talking Aztec Empire type stuff, right? Yep. Yeah. And um, oh, I'm Sarah. I'm a Catholic. That's Liz. She's a witch. The end. <laughs> When I thought about doing this episode, I had to go back and check that we hadn't already done it before mm-hmm. um, because I was remembering pieces of our episodes from Mexico and Brazil. Okay. Um, so I knew that I'd like vaguely touched on the Aztecs, which is our topic for today, whenever I discussed the link between Santa Muerte and Mixtecuacihuatl. But I couldn't remember if you had already told the story on like the other side of the Aztecs or not. Like that was where my brain was tripping up. It's like, I don't want to declare this our topic and then find (laughs) out that Sarah's already done this whole spiel. (laughs) No, you're good. I had to go back and like listen to our episodes again. Oh, Um, God. (laughs) Why would you do that? (laughs) Pure torture. Um, Right. (laughs) Anyway, uh, here we are. Um, I'm dropping us down immediately into 1453, Constantinople. Uh, it's a city that is where Turkey is now. Um, mm-hmm. I believe it has just fallen to the Mongol Empire and has become Islamic Istanbul. Okay. Um, if at any point I ever stop, start talking about something that you want to talk about, you can just tell me because... I don't think I will you start. will. Okay. But... But you, but you threw me for a loop with Constantinople, so maybe you will. I don't know. We'll see. All right. Um, Constantinople uh, pretty much just gets us to where we need to be. So uh, because it becomes Islamic Istanbul, uh, 
it closes the Silk Road to Christian tradesmen. They can't exactly freely pass through this city anymore. Mm. Um, so they need a new way to reach the wealth of foreign goods over in the East. Um, and no one really knows how the world works, how to accomplish this. Mm-hmm. Not all of the globe has been mapped out yet. Discoveries have yet to be made about important currents in the ocean, so on and so forth. So these explorers are like, I don't know. I mean, I guess we could just keep following like Africa's coast all the way down and just see what happens. Uh-huh. Um, or maybe we could just go west like a whole, whole bunch into the Atlantic and maybe we could just boop, end up in the east. I don't know. Sure. Following Africa's coast down and around does lead to the founding of the Cape of Good Hope in 1488 and with it, new extreme like a new extremely popular way to reach Asia. Um, And this successfully bypasses Istanbul. Mm -hmm. Columbus, though, uh, my dude was in creative mode. He said, (laughs) fuck your trade route. Um, I want to go west to get east. Uh Hold my beer. Um, (laughs) And he drew up these calculations where he like got the math really wrong by like even his time standards he paid zero attention to like the conversion math across different countries measurement systems or something the way I understand it and so he got the size of the earth too small oh boy (laughs) (laughs) so he waves this plan around at investors who all tell him that his math is very clearly bad it's wrong Yeah, like, that's not how far away those things are from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, screw you, I know best. Um, and he waves it around at the king and queen of Spain, um, who also know his math is super bad. And it's like, this dumb fuck. They um, like, it's like when someone is clearly gonna fail. So it's like, I'm, why even get involved? Like, it's just embarrassing. Yeah, they're very reluctant to fund Columbus's shit show of a trip, but they do bite in the end because like, what do they have to lose? It's a little bit like the space race where they might fail, but also how cool would it like the bragging rights of being the first to do something be? True. They're like, here's a 99% chance of like failing, but the 1% chance we could be like the first people to go west to get east would be like neat. That'd be pretty neat. Also, he'll leave, (laughs) you know, like he'll be, he'll be gone. (laughs) We can just pay him money to disappear from our lives. Right. Him and his bad math. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. Columbus financed hits the Atlantic with a carrick, two caravels, a half-baked plant, and a ton of unearned confidence. Sailing west in the middle of a hurricane season he does not know is going on and avoids somehow through pure happenstance. Wow. Yeah. On October 12, 1492, he lands in the Bahamas and meets the Taino people, writing after talking about how kind they are, quote, they should be good and intelligent servants, for I see that they say very quickly everything that is said to them, and I believe they would become Christians very easily, for it seemed to me that they had no religion. Our Lord pleasing at the time of my departure, I will take six of them from here to your highness uh, in order that they may learn to speak. Oh boy. The thing of, I remember that exact passage, like reading that in high school, I think, and it gave me chills then and it and it gives me chills now the idea of oh what a beautiful lovely kind people they'll make perfect slaves yeah it's <sighs> it, it turns my stomach it's awful so 
Um, and I read a few pages of his journal entries because I'm like, oh, I want to know where this sits in like the larger context of like this entry. Um, and it just like where it falls, it just falls in the middle of so much like transactional relationship between them of not only complimenting like how nice they are, how gentle, blah, 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 but like he wants their gold in their hospitality. So he gives them basic human decency and trinkets. And he's like, they literally don't know the value of anything. Like I can give them anything and they think it's the most valuable thing in the world. So they'll give me like whatever I want in return. Right. And he phrases it very much like, if I do this now, if I'm super nice to them now and just give them like garbage that they think is worth something, then they'll give Spain every single thing we ask for and everything that they have in the future when we show up again. (sighs) And it's like, I wish somebody would have taken you aside and just like kicked you in the balls like 40 times. (laughs) 40 times. Um, At the minimum. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Wow, that sucks. He's fucking sucks. <laughs> Everybody should have just taken turns. They tie him to a tree. It's just a line of people going up, kicking him. <laughs> a good start. In fact, that should have been what the Taino people got to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, most of us know how the Columbus story uh, ends atrocity, disease, colonization, mutilization of peoples. The works. <laughs> <laughs> What generally happens when white people insert themselves into other people's business? Yeah. 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 Uh, The important thing here is that Columbus's arrival in the Americas sparks intense interest in the Americas um, as a place for wealth, conversion, and colonization. Mm -hmm. And his arrival in the Americas is only 27 short years before a Spanish conquistador lands on Mexican soil and brings the whole of the Aztec empire to its knees. Yep. So that's kind of how that fits into the story. Because uh, every time I think about the Aztecs, I think about them being like so ancient, so old, so in the past. But I'm like literally like 27 years after Columbus, like gone. I wonder why we think that because I because like that too think of indigenous people as being primitive yeah you're right I think that's a big problem you're right because we we look at the Aztec empire and we look at what was going on in in the 1500s in Europe and we're like oh my god Europe is on is in the renaissance like we're so much and more advanced. It's like, mm. what was really interesting is that in one of the documentaries I watched, um, they're like, it's really kind of unfair um, for us to do that uh, to the Americas to have that kind of attitude because mm-hmm. people came from Africa, they dispersed from Africa. So not only is this other side of the world more densely populated, it has had thousands of more years to develop technology and more people and more brains to like invent things right they stopped Uh, moving earlier yeah so (laughs) these people over here if you had given them another like thousand years they would have been in the exact same place the people over in the east were right they just hadn't gotten there quite yet they were already figuring out how to like uh uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, um, but they were working with um, silver and with gold and things like that. It was only yeah, metallurgy. Yeah, it was only yeah. a matter of time before they figured out things like iron. 
and stuff mm-hmm. like that next. Right. Um, we just kind of got to them before that and we're like, oh, you're so primitive. It's like, you got a fucking head start. Like, shut up. Literally. And the idea of like cultural advancement is not a straight line either. Like we think of it like that because that's what like our historical timelines are set up to look like, but it doesn't necessarily work that way. Like one culture is not more quote unquote advanced than another, just because they work with metal or like they have computers. Like that's not how it works. Like culture and swords, but we were still throwing our shit out of windows for the longest time. (laughs) Right. And like culture is culture is culture. It doesn't matter what technology you have. It's still valid. It's still a people's way of life, you know? Oh, it just makes me so mad. Go on a little tangent about it every time. Yeah. There's a lot to be angry about. But anyway, I'm going to hop back for a second and I'm going to talk about the beginnings of the Aztec Empire so that we can understand kind of where we're at at um, its fall. So the Mexica, um, and that it's M-E-X-I-C-A. The Nahuatl pronunciation, I guess, is Mexica. Um, They were one of many indigenous peoples in Mesoamerica, which was populated with city-states of ever-shifting alliances. Um, and the Mexica end up being driven to an island in the middle of Lake uh, Texcoco. And interpret seeing an eagle perched on a cactus there is like a good sign of like, I know we got driven here, but like, this is a good place. This is going to be good for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would have done the same thing because I definitely see a crow on a street lamp when I'm dispensing groceries. And I'm like, you're right, universe. I am supposed to be working at Walmart right now. <laughs> Yeah, uh, like I, I, I have, um, I just had crows flying over and I was like, okay, my friends are here. Like the, hu- the human bird symbolic relationship mm-hmm. goes back and back so, and back, like to the beginning does. of time for sure. I don't know what it is about birds. We were like, hmm, that's special. I'm special <laughs> about right now. <laughs> for sure. Anyway, the Mexica decide to build here in the year, it's estimated, um, 1325, the city-state of Tenochtitlan, which you've probably heard of. Mm -hmm. Tenochtitlan is not a major power at this point, but it's in a unique position being on a lake. They can close off access to the city whenever they want to. They can trade very easily. Uh, They can travel the city on foot or by canoe because of the canals they install. Um, And I'll talk uh, just a little bit more about Tenochtitlan later. But um, first, I want to talk about how it becomes the central feature of the Aztec Empire. Cool. So let's learn some principal characters. My favorite thing, throwing Mm -hmm. a shit ton of names at you and hoping Uh you figure it out. Um, But now it hurts for both of us because these names are very long. And hard to say. They're toughies. Yeah. Um, so it is the early 1400s. Tenochtitlan and the Mexica are ruled by a man named Chimalpopoca. Across Lake Texcoco, the city-state of Texcoco, and the Akalua are ruled by a dude that does not really matter. So I'm not going to tell you his name. Mm-hmm. Um, but his son is Prince Nezahualcoyot. Um, all of these guys ultimately bow to a tyrant named Tezozomuk. 
um, who was the king of a neighboring city-state, Azcapotzalco, um, and the Tepanecs. You're doing like so much better than I'm going to do. So <laughs> like, I would give yourself a lot of credit. Okay, cool. Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Um, anyway, Tezosomic is old, like old as dirt, not quite like biblical figure old, um, which still freaked me out when I figured out how old people in the Bible are. That's <laughs> another rant for another day. Um, but uh, Tezosomic is still kicking it over 100 years old. Okay. Despite this, people are scared of this guy. Um, historian Fernando de Alva Cortez is de Sochik, I really don't know how to say that last uh, part of his name, um, describes him as, quote, the most cruel man who ever lived, proud, oh. warlike, and domineering. He was so old, according to what appears in the histories, and to what elderly princess have told me, that they carried him about like a child swathed in feathers and soft skins. They always took him out into the sun to warm him up. And at night he slept between two great braziers and he never withdrew from their glow because he lacked natural heat. I love that. I love all of that. That yeah, is You're going to love so much of what these people have to say. I, I'll, I already do. Um, but anyway, Tezosomic is like your mean old granddad who probably still uses slurs and has PTSD and thinks you don't hit your kids enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm there. Yeah, so just that. Um, anyway, he and uh, the city state Teshkoko have major beef and have for a while. Um, I think he tried to kick their ass at one point and got his ass handed to him instead. Um, and now he's like, you know what, round two. Um, so he gets um, Chimalpococa and the warriors of Tenochtitlan to help him go kick Teshkoko's ass. And they do, slaughtering the king and sending, sending the prince into exile. The prince, Nesawakuyot, is eventually allowed to stay in Tenochtitlan and be educated at a Meshika school. Cool. This is all well and good until Crypt Keeper Tezizomic finally <laughs> kicks the bucket. Mm -hmm. um, and you can imagine how many sons a dude that old managed to create. Give give it a thought for a second. He's like uh, when he dies. I would guess he had thirty six children. He, I didn't go look, but he has enough that it was a problem. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, so even though one of his sons takes the throne, another one immediately whose name does not matter for the purpose of this story so I didn't write it down um, just to keep this simple uh, that son deposes the first one okay um, then that son straight up assassinates Chamalpopoca in Tenochtitlan okay not a smartest idea uh, because the prince Nezhuacoyot being raised in Tenochtitlan obviously formed friendships in the city while mm -hmm. he was being raised and schooled. So with Tezuzomic dead, he gets to go back home and rule Teshkoko. Uh -huh. And with Chimalpopoca dead, his new Mashika bud, uh, Iskwat, takes the throne. And okay. both have every reason to want Tezuzomic's son dead, especially because this aspiring tyrant has eyes on these two guys already. Okay. So... This son was counting on like, oh, you know, we have ever shifting alliances. We never get along, like whatever. And didn't really take into account the fact that, oh shit, 
they formed an alliance while my back was turned. Okay. Um, this is not going to work out for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more complicated than this, uh, but the conflict leads to an alliance of drafted city-states um, where Tenochtitlan and Texcoco finally get other city-states to like put aside all their difference and they're like hey do you want to help us kick like these people's asses who've been like telling us what to do for a really long time okay um, like, so yeah. this is i am on the other side of this story so this is what yeah. i was reading about when it would say like the the mexica like the the tenochtitlan and the Texcoco alliance yeah, this is okay. like the Tepanek Wars or something. Okay, That's got essentially it. what I'm talking about. Very vague terms. <laughs> okay, got it. Yeah, I'm on, yeah. I'm like in the future a little bit and on the other yep. side of it. So, got it. I will meet up with you in a second. Cool. Um, so, all the other city-states are finally like, sure, we'd love to like band up against these tyrant assholes and kick their asses. Um they do they team up against Tezizomek's son who is killed and sacrificed and three of the city states decide to keep their ties after the fight which are Tenochtitlan, Texcoco, and Tlacopan um, and they sign a treaty in 1430 known as the Triple Alliance which births the Aztec Empire got it I'm there yes so we get that out of this weird little feud with the tyrant guy got it over time, Tenochtitlan will make itself the main character of the group project. Um, so even <laughs> though it's a triple alliance, they're like, hmm, is it, is it though? Are we really a triple alliance? Relatable. <laughs> that was always me every single time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, its population grows to an estimated and astounding couple hundred thousand people. And the quote-unquote Aztec Empire grows to an estimated million or so people. Wow. It's That's very a lot. Big. It's yeah. very big. Um, the reason I have to say like quote-unquote empire is because one historian says Tenochtitlan was a beautiful parasite, uh, meaning that we have to kind of cast off our traditional ideas of what an empire is when it comes to the Aztecs. It's not like the Romans where their people swept in and killed and occupied the area from now on. In the Aztec Empire, it's really just Tenochtitlan telling surrounding areas, hey, give us a portion of your wealth or else. And when someone says, or else, they go beat them up. Um, okay. So think somewhere between like mob insurance and taxes. Okay. So yeah. yeah, they're not occupying everybody's lands, but everybody is having like their resources constantly drained by Tenochtitlan. Okay, got it. Um, Tenochtitlan and the Aztecs um, are immensely interesting because of this weird duality you start to see in their lives. Um, violence is kind of a staple of their day-to-day lives. They're expanding their territories and draining the resources out of their neighbors. They're also a warrior culture with social mobility really only possible through success as a warrior. Um, and this culture increases in importance as decades pass in Tenochtitlan. And some sources say an advisor to a string of kings, Telequel, advises for the burning of history books and a rise in militarism, the latter of which is evidenced by an emphasis placed on the war god, Huitzilopochtli. 
but that also kind of reminds that feels like so modern like this idea of oh we're just gonna make like soldiers super important and burn the history books and it's like um america gee, gee america i wonder what that's 2016. about literally <laughs> it's just it's it's just gonna repeat itself forever that's how it goes forever until never until finally we all kill each other we all just die yeah sometimes i just think about the fact that it is inevitable one day there will be a heat death of the universe and none of this will exist anymore mm-hmm. that will happen um and we will all be gone and none of yeah. this will have mattered yeah no i think about that every single day <laughs> it's probably the last thing i think about before i fall asleep yeah it hits me at really weird times of the day it kind of screws up my momentum <laughs> <laughs> right mm-hmm. You're just stuck just for like three to make hours. Coffee. Just staring at the wall. <laughs> just pouring half and half, and suddenly I'm thinking about the inevitability <laughs> of like everyone dying. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anywho. Anywhoozles. Unlike <laughs> other soldiers, uh, the Aztecs are not encouraged to kill their enemies. They are trained instead to capture them and rise in the ranks according to this. Um, so prisoners of war are taken back to the city temples where they are sacrificed by priests with obsidian blades to the god Huitzilopochtli, um, who is also the god of the sun, so that the sun will continue to burn and rise unset. Okay. A documentary pointed out that this makes the Aztecs unique. Most countries, they go off, they fight on battlefields, and soldiers wind up the primary witnesses of the atrocities of war. Uh, But in the Aztec Empire, their priests are slaughtering thousands of humans in the center of their city on temple steps in front of everyone. So the enemies of the Aztecs are dying in front of their citizens, not in front of their soldiers. Mm. Mm. So that that blew my mind. Yeah. The second the documentary said, I'm like, what would it be like to grow up in a society where almost all deaths of war happened in front of citizens and not soldiers yeah like what if in i mean the war we grew up with what if in the iraq war instead of murdering people in iraq our military brought them back here and executed them all in the town square square. right or like on the on the lawn in front of the white house like one by one in a line bizarre (laughs) yeah like what would that do to our country and it would mess us up a lot but i also think it would make our nationalism problem so much worse yeah but would it or would we be like would we have had a greater outcry against the war than we did I think you might see that from adults. I think the children growing up around that atmosphere and being like indoctrinated into that Mm. kind of society Mm -hmm. where like, look at us, look at our glory. We take our enemies, we slaughter all of them, that they would have been a very nationalistic generation. Yeah. So like our our Gen Z now would not be the Gen Z that we we have. Like they would be more pro-war, you think? I think so. It's interesting to think about. That's, and it's the priests doing the slaughter. Like, it is. What if, like, what if our, 
like evangelical ministers would probably be the closest equivalent. <laughs> like our televangelists <laughs> were massacring people. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a name of one off the top of my head. Joel Osteen just on it's just live out there. obsidian blade held high. <laughs> on like live like Sunday morning, <laughs> praise and worship and slaughter. <laughs> oh man I mean he is a terrible person don't get me wrong but yeah imagining him like actively slaughtering people is a little different I think it would be so hard to know clear-cut what's right and wrong because of how complex that situation would be but again that's the Christian ideology of right and wrong you know yeah I just can't imagine it I I don't know I can't wrap my head around it it blows my mind it's bizarre yeah. Um, but anyway, this is one of the reasons that historians find the Aztecs particularly interesting. They have this violence at like the heart of their lives. Then here they are at the same time making beautifully patterned cloaks and this intricate jewelry of gold and leather and turquoise and feathers. They're having these uh, magnificent feasts of squash, tomatoes, fish, beans, corn, tortillas, chia, amaranth, cocoa, chili peppers, honey, maize. Mm. They're writing poetry and some of that poetry is still around, still exists. Um, They're telling riddles to each other in the marketplace when they have some downtime to entertain each other. They're getting high on mushrooms, Mm. not only for religious experiences, but also just to have a good time. Um, And for them, they're leaving us with profound observations like, quote, I have drunk fungus wine and my heart weeps on earth. I have only pain. It matters nothing. We are all precious jewels of the gods strung on a thread. We are all together jewels on his necklace. (sighs) Chills. And for that to have come out of society where they're slaughtering people in the middle Mm -hmm. of their town. Like like the blood is like flowing down the temple steps. Yeah. As they like cut out people's hearts. They are such (laughs) immensely complex peoples. Yeah fascinating people yeah uh but all things must end um for the aztecs the end comes in the form of a man named hernan cortez um who i heard some things about in some of the documentaries that i watched it's like impossible to avoid any mention of him whatsoever he's kind of a main character (laughs) yeah um but I didn't research anything about him. I didn't really write anything about him at all in case he featured in your story. I assumed that he would. Um, all I'm going to tell you from my story is that he is from Spain. He's a dick. And <laughs> from here, I plan to keep to indigenous accounts of the invasion as much as possible. Got it. As we know, history is written by the winners. Um, So I was not expecting to find any firsthand accounts by Mexica writers. Um, It turns out there are some, and some are written in uh, Nuwatu. But it's a little complicated because the accounts were collected and compiled by a Franciscan friar named Bernardino de Sagun. You're nodding at me. Um, I know that guy. (laughs) Yes. Um, They are collected in a 19th in a 16th century meaning contemporary work called the Florentine Codex. Okay. Um, So our curation does have Spanish and Christian fingerprints on it. 
is the problem, uh, making it difficult to tell if the story of the invasion would have been different had the Mashika been like editor-in-chief of their own publication. Right. The Codex does skew heavily sympathetic toward the Mashika, where other accounts do not, but it can't be discounted that these accounts aren't still being filtered or cherry-picked in some way because of who put them together. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of the FYI Mm -hmm. on that. Um, I'm going to be quoting from this codex as I go because it's really fascinating. Um, Book 12 of the codex, which covers the invasion, opens with a series of omens. Uh, Quote, 10 years before the Spaniards first came here, a frightening omen appeared in the sky. It was like a large glowing blaze. It seemed to pierce the sky itself, very wide at the base and narrow at the top. It extended to the very middle of the sky, to the very heart of the heavens. When it shone in the east in the middle of the night, it burned so bright one could believe it was the dawn. The blaze appeared at midnight and burned till the break of day, then disappeared from view. When the day broke, the sun effaced it. This omen was visible each night for a year, beginning the year 12 house. When it appeared at midnight, everyone shouted and hit their hands against their mouths. They were frightened and asked themselves what it could mean. It continues to list a series of omens, like a temple spontaneously combusting, the lake boils at one point. Um, They don't know it's an asteroid, but the way that they describe it, it's clearly an asteroid flashing across the sky and breaking into pieces and disappearing. Mm. Um, Lightning strikes a temple on a sunny day. They hear a female voice crying out in the middle of the night about the fate of her children this like very ghostly disembodied voice Um, many many other things that just freak them out yeah um after this list of omens the codex drops us kind of straight into a situation where some strangers have arrived on a boat um and rumors are circulating about who these strangers are uh so a group of indigenous people decide to sail out on a recon mission for moctezuma the second who is like the current king of tenochtitlan pretty much for all intents and purposes uh the emperor of the aztec empire Mm -hmm. um they set sail and they decide they're going to pretend to be tradesmen so that they can gather intel on these strangers okay they end up being impressed by the spanish uh because these guys are like nothing else they've ever seen before um they do end up trading goods with them the spanish leave and they go tell Moctezuma, hey these guys maybe could be gods like we don't really know what do we do Um, and he says you know we'll just set up a bunch of surveillance in case they come back uh the spanish return um and optimistic their captain could be one of their gods maybe quetzalcoatl um and that maybe they're entering this age where they get to be ruled by their own divinity, which sounds like really cool. And I mean, very like second coming of Jesus kind of thing. Right. I mean, that would be rather scary, but exciting too. It's like, okay, finally, I don't have to work anymore, you know? Yeah, it's terrifying, <laughs> but they're like, you know, like this honor of the gods that we've worshipped for so long have like come to our shores and they want us they will yeah, need us for sure we're the um, chosen people yeah like we just feel so loved and so special right now mm-hmm. um like they send another party out to greet the spaniards just kind of hoping for this um upon meeting Hernan cortez aboard his ship quote 
They adorn the captain. They put him in the turquoise mosaic serpent mask attached to a Quetzal feather headband. With it were fixed, hanging from each side, green stone earplugs in the shape of serpents. Then they put a sleeveless jacket on him, and they put a necklace around his neck of plated green stone, in the middle of which was a golden disc. Next, they fastened a mirror to his hips, and they also dressed him in a cape. And on his legs, they placed the green stone bands with the golden bells. Also, they gave him and placed on his arms a shield with cross pieces of gold and mother of pearl, with feather fringes of Quetzal feathers and a Quetzal banner. And they laid the obsidian sandals before him. And the other three sets of adornments, the finery of the gods, they only arranged in rows before him for him to see. When this had been done, the captain said to them, is this all? Is this everything you have welcome us? Is this how you greet people? They replied, this is everything with which we have come, our Lord. Then the captain ordered that they be tied up. They put irons on their feet and necks. When this was done, they fired the large cannon, and the messengers then fainted and swooned. One by one, they fainted, they fell to the deck, swaying, they lost consciousness. And the Spaniards lifted and raised them and gave them some wine to drink. Then they gave them food, fed them. With this, they recovered their strength and caught their breath. When this had been done, the captain said to them, listen, I have known and heard it said that these Mexica are very strong, are great warriors and conquerors. If there is even one Mexica, he can chase, overpower, conquer, and defeat even 10, even 20 of his enemies. Now I want to be convinced, to see for myself, to test how strong you are, how manly you are. Then he gave them leather shields, iron swords, and iron lances. He said to them, very early in the morning, as dawn comes to pass, we will fight each other, and we will challenge each other. We will find out who will fall first. They answered the captain, saying, Listen, our lord, this is not what Moctezuma ordered us to do. All we came to do was greet and salute you. We were not ordered to do what the lord wants. If we should do that, would not Moctezuma become angry with us? Would he not destroy us for that? Then the captain said, no, it will be done. I want to see and admire your prowess, for it is known in Castile. It is said that you are very powerful and valiant. Eat while it is still before dawn, and I will eat them too. Arm yourselves well. Uh, the Mexica returned to Moctezuma, telling him the Spaniards' strange food, their really strange attitudes of like, they want us to fight them. We don't know what's going on. Right. We were super nice, and they're like, you're going to kick our ass or else. <laughs> it's kind of awkward right um um, and the more this messengers describe the spaniards the more Moctezuma fears them what's to come quote he was frightened when he heard how the cannon exploded on the spaniards command sounding like thunder causing people to fall down as it deafened their ears he was told when it fired something like a ball of stone comes out of its entrails. It comes out shooting sparks and raining fire and the smoke from it has a foul odor like that of rotten mud and punish this the head even to the brain and causes discomfort. And if they shot at a hill, it seemed to crumble and fall apart. And when it struck a tree, it splintered seeming to vanish as if someone blew it away. Well, their war gear was all made of iron. They dressed themselves in iron. They put iron on their heads. Their swords were iron. Their bows were iron. Their shields were iron. Their lances were iron. Their deer horses carry them upon their backs. They are as high as rooftops. Whoa. And I just wanted to include that because it's really interesting to see somebody else's account of like these other people that they've never met before. Right. Um, 
just how they describe them. Yeah, the thing of um, the the cannonball and it coming from the cannons and trails and like sweeping away trees. It's very scary. Yeah, just like so much of like he wanted to be impressed by them so much and was so excited. And just with everything that they have to say, he's just so scared that I would be too. Like hearing this is terrifying because not only are they powerful, they are literally unlike anything that they know. Yeah. Nothing to compare to them. Yeah. Um, It goes on to talk about how otherworldly they are with light skin that they cover up, whereas like the indigenous people don't cover up their skin. Um, They have yellow hair and beards. They have enormous domesticated dogs at their feet, which really freaks out um, the Mexica. Mm -hmm. Moctezuma and his people begin to worry. Um, Sorcerers, when tasked, cannot harm the Spaniards with curses or drive them away, no matter how much they try. And so the indigenous people decide to keep an eye on the Spanish and pretty much just go out of their way to keep them happy because they're afraid of what happens if they don't keep them happy. Yeah. When the Spanish encounter the Tlaxcalans, they're fed lies about the Tlaxcalans' enemies, the Kululans. I don't know how to say that word. Um, That's a guess. Um, And they're told that these people are evil. Um, So the Spanish decide to help the Tlaxcalans slaughter these guys. And after this, um, the Tlaxcalans tell the Spanish that the Kululans were friends of the Mexica, who were just as bad. Mm-hmm. Um, so like these people are taking advantage of the fact that these like super scary dudes with cannons just showed up in, in their area so I my story gets into I think it's the Tlaxcalans and I'm gonna get into like why like my story is a lot about them so like I'm gonna get, get into like the history of the feud between them and the Mexica and then like what happened so do, they, do they say it different in Spanish because the one thing that I found out about a lot of this is the x especially does not like pronounce the same way in Spanish as it does in like Nahuatl I'm sure that I have the Spanish pronunciation so I'm sure that you are saying it the Nahuatl way and I'm saying it the Spanish way that was one of the reasons I kept getting <laughs> fucked up when I was looking for pronunciations and like Forvo would be like, we have it being said by a Spanish person. I'm like, that's not going to be right. <laughs> no, no. So you have like, you're pronouncing it the correct way for the time period. I, I will not. You're pronouncing it the correct way for the people who came there. Right. And the people who live there now. But because. but you you're pronouncing it the correct way in the context in the context <laughs> of your story. The weird X's. <laughs> yes. Because <laughs> yeah, uh, the X definitely threw me off because like um, the Mexica. I'm like, oh, the Mexica. Like I know that. And then somebody said <laughs> in the documentary, they're like the Mexica. I'm like the what? <laughs> yeah, fuck. <laughs> the who? <laughs> I gotta re I gotta rethink everything yeah that I know that makes so much sense so (laughs) yeah (laughs) fuck now I'm realizing I'm gonna say it the wrong way the whole time (laughs) but you're not technically well well like it's not Mashiko that we go to (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) but like within the context of 
who these people were in the time that you're talking about them. You're correct. Whereas I will not be. And what's it matter? Yeah. <laughs> Me. We're literally doing we're, the absolute we are best. White literally telling a story where they're not going to agree with each other because true. I'm, true. I'm telling the indigenous side, you're gonna be telling the the Spanish side. And exactly. It's gonna diverge. Yep. Um, anywho, uh the Telashkalan people take advantage of the Spanish. They pull out their burn book. They say <laughs> the Mexica people are fugly sluts. <laughs> indeed indeed um, <laughs> and this news makes its way back to Moctezuma who has already been wary of Cortez for taking a woman for a translator who I do you know about the translator no. I don't talk about her at all no um he takes this particular woman for a translator she has a name I didn't write it down because I didn't know how to say it anyway mm-hmm. moving on um and has been kind of using her to ask around about Moctezuma. And he's like, eh, he was kind of scared of these guys. But now they're slaughtering some people and they're bringing up my name a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have good feelings about this. No, not warm and fuzzy. Moctezuma, an empath, sensing something <laughs> bad is about to happen. <laughs> Looking at the asteroid and the... <laughs> <laughs> the lightning striking the temple an empath yeah exactly 100 percent um so uh Moctezuma blocks off one of the two roads to Tenochtitlan hoping to trick Cortez into taking the open road um presumably to ambush and kill him yeah um but Cortez recognizes this trick and so he proceeds down the blocked road instead Moctezuma as afraid as his people of the Spanish marching toward them, tries to buy off the Spaniards by sending gold off with messengers. Um, like, hey, you don't have to keep marching toward Tenochtitlan. Like, look at all of this money. Right. Um, deal oh, no this could be yours. <laughs> exactly. Deal or no deal. Yeah. I, I could call the banker like right now. Like, keep up in the amount, but you're gonna hit the you're gonna hit the buzzer. <laughs> get on a boat. <laughs> Please get on a boat. <laughs> Please go back to your boat, kind <laughs> sir. <laughs> oh, you Can can't. Too kindly to your boat. <laughs> he can't because he burned all his boats because he's a psychotic motherfucker. <laughs> but also he's like, oh, so you guys have a bunch of gold in Tenochtitlan is what you're telling me? Right, that's like, what I'm hearing. Yeah, and they're like, we didn't think this through. Ah, <laughs> uh, beans. <laughs> Would you believe that this is all of the gold in the city? <laughs> Would you buy that? <laughs> right. Oh, man. This is not good. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> um, sorcerers still are useless um, and really are only seeing visions of their country on fire. I cut this story for time, um, but there's a, an interesting story in the Codex where they, like, go off to do something and they, like, meet with a drunken man who scares the absolute dog piss out of them. <laughs> um <laughs> And then they figure out that he's a god um, and that uh, it, it goes on from there. But it's really funny watching all of these sorcerers be very afraid of a drunk man. They're like, I don't know if we can attack the Spanish. Like this drunk guy, he's really scary and he's kind this, of in the way. This drunk guy is spitting straight facts right now. He is. 
yeah that's the thing they're like he's like a prophet we don't know what's going on it's really scary mm-hmm. um but anyway they get like these visions of the country on fire and they're like we don't think this is good um Mm-mm. we also think this is not great um mm-hmm. finally the spanish are close quote when the spaniards had arrived at Shiloko, i have no idea could not find a pronunciation for this city um Moctezuma dressed and prepared himself to meet them with other great rulers and princes, his major men and nobles. Then they went to meet him, Cortez. They arranged beautiful flowers and gourds used for vases. In the midst of sunflowers and magnolias, they placed popcorn flowers, yellow magnolias, and uh, cocoa blossoms. And they made these into wreaths for the head and for garlands. And they wore golden necklaces, necklaces with pendants, and necklaces with precious stones. And when Moctezuma went to meet them, he bestowed gifts on Cortez. He gave him flowers. He put necklaces on him. He hung garlands around him and put wreaths on his head. He laid out before him the golden necklaces, all of his gifts for the Spaniards. He ended by putting some of the necklaces on him. Then Cortez asked him, is it not you? Are you not he? Are you Moctezuma? And Moctezuma responded, yes, I am Moctezuma. Then he stood up to welcome Cortez to meet him face to face. He bowed his head low, stretched as far as he could, and stood firm. Um, He gives this really long welcoming speech um, that I'm cutting because I don't understand like all of the particulars exactly of what he's saying. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's pretty much of like, hey, you're so welcome. We're not going to kill you. Yeah. You don't hurt us. Right. <laughs> That's the vibe it gives off. Mm-hmm. Um, once it's translated, uh, Moctezuma receives the reply. Tell Moctezuma to not be afraid, for we greatly esteem him. Now we are satisfied because we have seen him in person and heard his voice. For until now, we have wanted to see him face to face. And now we have seen him. We have come to his home in Mexico. Slowly, he will hear our words. Um, Thereupon, Cortez took Moctezuma by the hand and led him by it. They walked with him, stroking his hair, showing their esteem, and the Spaniards looked at him, each examining him closely. And like that, Moctezuma is just, like, taken away. Like, they literally just, like, grab him by the hand and, like, pet him like a dog, and then they're like, and then he was theirs, is pretty much how the Codex treats it. Other documentaries I watched were like, oh yeah, they took him at like sword point and like kidnapped him. And the codex is very like, nah, they kind of just like dumbly let him out of the room and then he belonged to him. Right. Oh, that's weird. But I strange. I trust, I weirdly trust the more like idiosyncratic version. Mm -hmm. Like the version that you're not expecting. That's what I trust more. Yeah, it would make sense to me if, like, the conquerors came in and, like, whipped out a sword and took him away. But they're like, no, they just, like, kept patting him on the head and, like, <laughs> touching his hair. And next thing you know, you're like, whoopsie-daisy, I guess I gave <laughs> my kingdom away. <laughs> right. <laughs> How did that happen? <laughs> it's the hell out of me. He never had somebody play with his hair before. and it's it's truly it is flustering it's immobilizing it's paralyzing i have to stop you here do not make me mentally write cortez and moctezuma fan fiction in my head okay 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 (laughs) now i'm doing it heading down now i'm doing it (laughs) now i'm thinking about it (laughs) i don't hate it it's got either it's connotations that are not my favorite 
but it's kind of hot. I'm not going to lie. There's a story there. I'm picturing a great feast and I'm picturing some communal bathing (laughs) and I'll leave it at that. I get fill in the blanks. (laughs) (laughs) I think anyone can fill in the blanks. Let's be honest. (laughs) Anyway, um, we got a little sidetracked. Moctezuma is taken away. The Spanish occupy a city. They place him under guard, force him into providing hospitality, food, drink, riches. They lead Moctezuma around the city, and he is forced to take them to his store of personal treasure at one point. The text does itemize the treasures within this store um, and then says, quote, the Spaniards took everything. They appropriated everything. All they snatched as if it were their own. They appropriated everything as if it was their luck to find it. And after they removed the gold, when they had torn it all off, they piled up all the precious feathers, everything else in the middle of the courtyard in the center of it, end quote. This spectacle of like, everything being piled in the middle of the courtyard plus the bloody reputation of the spanish with uh, like the just slaughtered some people on their way over there they have the massive fucking cannons their ruler is captive to this guy you may or may not like it you don't really know (laughs) history is divided Um, this has the mexica doing whatever the spanish want out of absolute terror Mm. Um, because they can just see like we aren't really in control right now it would mm-hmm. be very easy for this situation to get a lot worse very quickly mm-hmm. um, then there comes a point when Cortez leaves um, I cut out the reason why because it didn't really matter um, mm-hmm. because the people who compiled the codex filled that in mm-hmm. Um, In his absence, one of his men, this is a name that is also filled in, um, Pedro de Alvarado, Mm -hmm. um, makes a demand of the Mexica people, quote, and then the son, Pedro, that's what they call him, the son, um, asked about the festival of uh, Huitzilopochtli. Um, he asked about the festival, how the festival was celebrated. He wanted to admire it and see in what form it is celebrated. Thereupon, Makazuma gave the order, and those who came to the emperor's palace spread the word. And when the notice came from Makazuma's prison, the women who had fasted for a year began to grind the chicolote seeds in the temple courtyard. The Spaniards appeared together in the courtyard with their weapons of war. They were decorated. They were armed. They walked among the women, encircled them, scrutinized each of the women who were grinding seeds, and then they entered the great palace. In quote, it describes the festival and its preparations for a minute. Um, who all's there, typical kind of behavior you see at the festival, um, a dance that they're doing. Um, and then the next chapter, I'm just going to read in its entirety. Quote, At this time, when everyone was enjoying the fiesta, when everyone was already dancing, when everyone was already singing, when song was linked to song and the songs roared like waves, in that precise moment, the Spaniards determined to kill people. They came into the patio armed for battle. They came to close the exits, the steps, the entrances to the patio, the gate of the eagle in the smallest palace, the gate of the kingstock and the gate of the snake of mirrors. And when they had closed them, no one could get out anywhere. 
Once they had done this, they entered the sacred patio to kill people. They came on foot, carrying swords and wooden and metal shields. Immediately, they surrounded those who danced, then rushed to the place where the drums were played. They attacked the man who was drumming and cut off both his arms. Then they cut off his head with such a force that it flew off, falling far away. At that moment, they then attacked all the people, stabbing them, spearing them, wounding them with their swords. They struck some from behind who fell instantly to the ground with their entrails hanging out of their bodies. They cut off the heads of some and smashed the heads of others into little pieces. They struck others in the shoulders and tore their arms from their bodies. They struck some in the thighs and some in the calves. They slashed others in the abdomen and their entrails fell to the earth. There were some who even ran in vain, but their bowels spilled as they ran. They seemed to get their feet entangled with their own entrails. Eager to flee, they found nowhere to go. Some tried to escape, but the Spaniards murdered them at the gates while they laughed. Others climbed the walls, but they could not save themselves. Others entered the communal house where they were safe for a while. Others lay down among the victims and pretended to be dead. But if they stood up again, the Spanish would see them and kill them. The blood of the warriors ran like water, forming pools, which widened as the smell of blood and entrails fouled the air. And the Spanish walked everywhere, searching the communal houses to kill those who were hiding. They ran everywhere. They searched every place. When people outside the sacred patio learned of the massacre, shouting began. Captains, come here quickly. Come with all arms, spears, and shields. Our captains have been murdered. Our warriors have been slain. Oh, Mashika captains, our warriors have been annihilated. Then a roar was heard, screams, people wailed as they beat their palms against their lips. Quickly, the captains assembled as if planned in advance and carried their spears and shields. Then the battle began. The Mashika attacked them with arrows and even javelins, including small javelins used for hunting birds. They furiously hurled their javelins at the Spanish. It was as if a layer of yellow cane spread over the Spaniards, end quote. Jeez Louise. Yeah, Yikes. it's a lot. Um, yeah. But, but as a chapter, just like reading a series of chapters in the Codex, like this one hit me particularly hard. Um, and I couldn't bring myself to cut like any part of it. Yeah, um, I don't think you should have. No. Um, and it is a translation, but the prose here is still like so immediate in a way that I wish a lot of literature was. Like it's not hiding behind like intellectualism or this cloak of really purple language. It's just telling you like, this is what I saw and it was terrible. Every yeah. part of it was terrible. And if there is metaphor, the metaphor is not to soften the action. It's to, like, drive it home. Even harder. Yeah, exactly. That's horrific. It's very horrific. Um, but this massacre happens um, at the festival, and it instigates warring between the Mexica and Spanish peoples, um, as you would expect. Mm -hmm. um, of Moctezuma's death, the Mexica write that four days after the Spaniards took their temple, they tossed two bodies outside, um, just the people out the door. Mm -hmm. um, the Mexica recognize the bodies and one is Moctezuma who they burn on a pyre and his eulogy is full of hate um, a lot of bitterness of like 
not only did you get us into this situation, but like you had to be like the big boss of everybody. You had to like punish people for things. Um, he was doing a lot of like shitty reforms before the Spanish came into the area. Um, and so there was, this was just kind of a way for people to say like, you know, like air all of their grievances with him. Okay. Um, you will get other accounts that instead of his body just like turning up like that, like being thrown outside, that Moctezuma asks his men to lay down their arms during the fighting at the demand of the Spanish who have him held hostage. Mm. Uh, and his people, instead of obeying, kill him for being their enemy's puppet. Okay. Um, obviously, it's difficult to say who's telling the truth because both sides have reasons for wanting the other side to have been the one to kill Moctezuma. Right. It's more convenient for the Spanish to be like, he was killed by his own people. Um, right. And it's better for the Mexica um, to be like, and the Spanish just tossed him out like garbage. Right. Yeah. And I'm thinking about that in the context of the story I'm going to tell. Um, days later, in the middle of the night, the Spanish attempt to flee the area. Uh, quote, in that season, it was raining, drizzling, some light drops. The Spaniards were able to cross several canals, but when they got to the fourth canal, then it was seen that they were leaving. A woman fetching water saw them and at that moment shouted, saying, come running. Your enemies have already left. They are slipping away. Then a man screamed from the temple. His cries spread everywhere. Everyone heard him. He said, oh, warriors, your enemies are coming out. Hasten here by war boat and along the roads. And when it was heard, there was an outcry and the war boatmen emerged. They hurried, they paddled hard, the boats hit and bumped one another. The war boats of Tenochtitlan rushed upon them and some came on foot heading toward Tlacopan to try to cut them off to stop their retreat. Then those who manned the boats hurled their barbed darts at the Spaniards. From both sides, darts fell on the Spaniards, but the Spaniards also shot arrows at the Mexicas. They shot with iron bolts and guns. There were deaths on both sides, the Spaniards and the Tlaxcalans, um, which I probably said wrong because I'm reading fast, were shot with arrows, the Mexica were shot with arrows and guns, and when the Spaniards had arrived where the Toltec Canal is, it was as though they had fallen off a precipice. They all fell, those of Tlaxcala, the Spaniards and the horses and some women. Soon the canal was completely full of them, full to the banks. Those who came at the rear just passed and crossed over on people, on bodies. Woof. Um, eventually, after much more pursuit, the Spanish escape. In the interim, another epidemic of smallpox tears through the Mexica people. Um, they write about the incident, quote, it spread over the people as a great destruction. Large bumps spread on people. Some were entirely covered on the face, the head, the chest, etc. The disease brought great desolation. A great many people died from it. People with the illness could not walk. They could only lay in their dwellings and sleeping places. They could not move. They could not stir. They could not change position nor lie on one side nor face down nor on their backs. And when they stirred, they screamed. The pustules that covered many people caused great desolation. A great many people died of them, and many just died of hunger, for no one took care of others any longer. On some people, the pustules were widely separated, and they did not suffer greatly, nor did many of them die of it. But many people's faces were marred by it. Their faces or nose were pitted. Some lost their eyes. Some were blinded. 
At this time, the pestilence lasted 60 days, 60 fateful days, and many were disabled or paralyzed by it, but they were not disabled forever. The Mexica were greatly weakened by it, end quote. Even though Cortez returns uh, with this advantage of, you know, this epidemic having um, swept through uh, his enemies, he's not outright victorious trying to conquer the Mexica again. Uh, the Mexica do still win battles. They capture Spaniards and sacrifice them, which I think is particularly like hilarious because it's such an insult to be sacrificed to somebody else's gods. Right. Um, they cut off their heads and hang them on a quote skull rack, mm. um, which is like imagine a bunch of like uh, parallel poles and they just like fed the heads along the poles. Okay. Skull yeah. Rack. Yeah. Cool. I'm there. Yeah. They did that with the Spanish, which is great. Neato. Um, <laughs> I like it. Picasso. <laughs> I like it, Picasso. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, despite these victories, the Mexica aren't making any significant gains. A seize of Tenochtitlan leads to starvation and dysentery. Little by little, they write, the enemy pressed us back against the wall, hemmed us in, and contained us. Then one night, the Mexica see something, like the omens that they saw at the very beginning, um, that makes them pause. They write, quote, when night had fallen, it rained and sprinkled off and on. Then in the dark, deep as a darkness of the night, there appeared in the heavens what was like a fire. It looked and appeared as if it was coming from the sky, like a whirlwind. It went spinning around and revolving. Then the blazing, turning ember seemed to explode. It was as if embers burst out of it, some very large, some very small, some like sparks. It rose up like a coppery wind. It arose crackling, snapping, and exploding loudly. Then it circled the walls of the water. Then it went into the midst of the lake and disappeared. No one struck his hand against his mouth. No one uttered a word. And on the next day, nothing more happened. All remained quiet and our foes remained quiet. But the Captain Cortez was watching from a rooftop under a canopy. It was a many-colored canopy. He was looking toward the common people. Spaniards swarmed about him. They were consulting among themselves. For our part, we gathered and debated what to do, what we should offer as tribute, and how we should submit to the Spaniards. Then our new emperor left on a boat. Only two men accompanied him, went with him. When they were about to take the emperor, all the people wept, saying, there goes the young prince, going to surrender himself to the gods, the Spaniards. Um, and surrender this new emperor, this, uh, this prince does to the Spaniards. They don't really have a choice at this point. Their people are starving, their people are dying. Um, the Codex, after it details how the Spanish continue to rob the Mexica along the roads, seize light-skinned women and brand and mark men for servants, ends, quote, and when the shield was laid down, when we collapsed, it was the year count, three house, and the day count was one serpent, end quote. And that is the story of the downfall of the Aztec Empire. That was so good. I don't even want to go. <laughs> I want to hear what the other side is. Well, mine is not exactly like 
here's here's the exact same like super detailed account of what the other side was doing like but I literally let I read nothing about the other side at all (laughs) I don't know anything about the conquistadors (laughs) not a not a word well I'm barely gonna talk about them like I'm I'm talking about Tlaxcala this the state of Tlaxcala and then like the in uh, the influence of Cortez on the state and then like after the fall of the empire like what the church did like and see i'm interested in that though because i know fuck all about cortez i didn't read a single word about him um (laughs) i I barely did either (laughs) i didn't focus on much of the uh empire outside of tenochtitlan um like that was the center of my story okay and then my story straight up stops the second that they get conquered Okay. Um, like that's where the codex stops they're like and we got conquered bye <laughs> we don't have anything else to say we're done <laughs> right well I guess I'll I'm be over. doing kind of like the epilogue then <laughs> yeah I'm curious to see literally what Mesoamerica looks like after like the codex ends because it just right. it like cuts off in the middle of everything <laughs> Um, well, yeah, they got conquered. <laughs> I know, but I feel like somebody could have been nice enough to like step in and be like, hi, um, I'm insert Spanish name here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, none I, of them are coming to mind. There are a lot of them. Not a single one is coming to my head right now. Um, just wanted to let you know, this is what's happened in the last 15 years. Um, right. Just to bring you up to speed. <laughs> Yeah, so mine is not going to be like the exact, like, here's what was going on on the other side, but it'll, I think it's nowhere near as detailed as yours. And it's nowhere near as close to like a primary source as yours. But (laughs) it's a story. (laughs) I'm still excited. Like, I'm still excited. You think that I'm lying to you. I do. But I'm not. Okay. I'm still excited like I told you that the documentaries mentioned like Cortez and stuff and I'm like yeah. he sounds like a little fucking psychopath a little yeah. sociopath um and then I didn't get to read anything else about him because I'm like just in case Sarah talks about him I'm not gonna let myself google this weirdo don't have that much to say about him because I was like okay the show is called Saints and Witches if I talk about Cortez that I compromise my entire <laughs> side of the show. And see, my story was like, uh, I mentioned a sorcerer like twice. Um, that's how because, I justified talking about them. Because a lot of the church sources about Cortez, unfortunately, paint him as this like larger than life figure which can be construed as like oh he's the hero of the story and I was not about to touch any of that sort of narrative you the ick. literally truly <laughs> um <laughs> the fan fiction with Moctezuma on the other hand <laughs> not so much <laughs> <laughs> maybe worth revisiting <laughs> just maybe for- we get into the source material just to do hedonistic things with it but <laughs> not opposed to that at all um you heard it here first Cortez is a bottom I think he was probably I think he was and I think he had a little bit like I could see BDSM 
I could remember, see. Remember, people who are really powerful in their daily lives like to be really submissive in their private lives. It's true. You need a break. He has a degradation kick. For sure. <laughs> For sure. Um, let's get into it. I'm excited. <laughs> Um, so today, like I mentioned, I'm going to talk about the Mexican state of Tlaxcala, and I'm going to talk about three saints from that state who lived during the time of the Aztec Empire who were recently canonized. Cool. Um, yeah, so when I would learn about like the Spanish conquest of the Aztec Empire, like in middle school and onward, it was presented as very black and white. Um, the people who lived there were called the Aztecs and Mm -hmm. it was presented as like all of what would later be Mexico were quote unquote the Aztecs and they they were all fighting against quote unquote the Spanish and that was it there was no nuance history dumbs things down like that because even whenever I looked up the Aztecs they're like well actually it's just a bunch of different indigenous people and none of them were called the Aztecs I'm like the fuck right and why are we taught why instead of like taking it one step at a time and actually learning what really happened the whole Tepanek war thing super confusing but it took you how long to like get the gist of what I was saying not very no and like and in my research, it was like, oh, okay, got it. Like, <laughs> I don't understand why they act like high schoolers and stuff are beyond that level of thought. Even middle schoolers, even middle schoolers, if you were like, okay, look, at least learn that there were a few different groups. Mm-hmm. And this is how they interacted before the Spanish showed up. And this is how they interacted after. But the problem is, the historical narrative is not centered on the conquered. It's centered on the conqueror. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it's it's super frustrating, but hopefully we can shed like a tiny sliver of light on something, you know? like Anything at this point. Right. Like anything would be better than what we got in middle school, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um. So I'm pretty sure back then the state of Tlaxcala was never mentioned, like ever. Um, What drew me to this story was, again, that I had absolutely no idea that there was a part of what would later be known as Mexico that actually assisted the Spanish conquistadors in conquering the Aztec Empire. It, It was always black and white. There were two sides and that was it. That's not true at all. There were, of course, other indigenous groups besides the Aztec Empire living in Mesoamerica at the time of the conquest. And these groups did not all get along, obviously. Like, they were people. (laughs) Just like Europe was made up of countries that fought each other. You know, like, it's like, duh, a Mm no-brainer. So Tlaxcala, again, I'm using the... (laughs) the gringo pronunciation (laughs) (laughs) Uh, are um, spaniards gringos no well i don't know Mm. interesting 
Interesting. I don't know. I don't know the terminology for I'm using the the colonizer pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Um Tlaxcala, which nowadays is goes by the same name. The area goes by the same name. It's Mexico's smallest state in both area and population. It's located just east of Mexico City, which is its own entity without being a state, just like Washington, D.C. The area, the area, the area that would later be known as Tlaxcala was settled by the Tlaxcaltecas or the Tlaxcalans. I've seen both interchangeably. Um, They settled it in the mid 14th century and they built a capital city for their small but powerful empire in 1348. And that city was called a name that I can't pronounce um, and that I could not find the pronunciation for. If I had to guess, I would say it's spelled T-E-P-E-C-T-I-C-P-A-C. Tepectipac. Sure. Um, yeah, that's their capital city. The Tlaxcaltecas were fiercely militaristic. Their central deity was a god called Kamashli or Kamashti. Um, I heard both pronunciations. He was also sometimes called Mishkuat. He's the god of the hunt, war, and storms, and he's also identified with the heavens. Mishkuat roughly means cloud serpent. From what I could gather, Mishkuat is also a bit of a Prometheus figure. He gave humans fire. So the Tlaxcaltecas were skilled warriors, and this meant that they were able to collect a lot of taxes from the peoples that they conquered. And it also meant that when the Aztec Empire began to flourish in the mid-1400s, the Tlaxcaltecas were able to resist being conquered by it. The Tlaxcalans and the Mexica shared a common origin and both spoke Nahuatl. They shared the same ancestral homeland, so they became sort of ritualistic enemies. And I'll talk more about their... <laughs> that's so. They were so similar, they hated each other. Well, that's the thing, though. Like, when you hate somebody, it's because you are the same as them like when you're like oh I hate that that person acts like that it's because you do the same things um so yeah they became ritualistic enemies um more about that in a second but the Aztecs were trying to conquer Tlaxcala and couldn't which was rare not many tribes or peoples could resist being conquered by the Mexica, especially when they're in that triple alliance, like you mentioned. And again, this is a super small area right next to Tenochtitlan. So, um, oh, <laughs> I wrote that I was going to show you a map for a visual and then completely forgot to screenshot Hi, one. one. <laughs> yep. <laughs> one second because I do think it's important to see like how how it looks it's kind of funny come on he's one of the people that the um Mexica had like flower wars with yes I'm just about to talk about that keep your pants on please (laughs) I won't talk about it it like when I was reading about their warrior culture 
they came up. Um, but I learned about that so independently from the Cortez story that I didn't until now connect that those were the same people. Got it. So you see like, oh, fuck. You're never going to be able to see that. Ah, it's my Send haunted it it's my haunted mansion filter. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. This is not a good map. I'm not off to a great start here. Anyway, is it I will like just, to the north of them. It's right to the east. To so, the east. and it's just a tiny. So basically, what you'll see if you look for it is a a, a map uh, like full of red where the Aztec Empire was, and just mm-hmm. a tiny little circle. <laughs> yeah, where they are. <laughs> yes, exactly. Is so, the circle closer to the north? Because I saw a map, and I feel like it was in the northern portion of whatever I'm remembering. Sure. But I know what you're talking about. Like yeah. a weird little holdout that yep. everything else is surrounded. But it's yes. Just the- yes, that is the Tlaxcalan Nation. So for a period of over 200 years, up until the Spanish conquest, the Tlaxcaltecas were engaged in a constant series of ritual wars with the Aztec empire. These wars that the Aztecs would fight, not just with the Tlaxcaltecas, but also with other groups were sometimes called the flower wars, like you said. Um, The earliest, most descriptive record we have of the Flower Wars comes from the Aztec nobleman that you, I think he told your entire story. Or um, what was his name? Uh... (laughs) Uh, There was one historian that I mentioned and quoted once. Was it Fernando or whatever? No, it was was, um, Isleosokit. Yeah, that guy. Yes, yes. Um, so here, is his name not Fernando? One second, I'm gonna find this <laughs> asshole's name. Who are you? Who are uh, you people? Yeah, um, Fernando de Alva Cortez. That yes, um, I I quoted him about um, Tezuzomuk. Got it. Yes, that guy. Um, so he wrote about the Flower Wars too, and he writes that from 14 to 1450 to 1454 the Aztecs had had a series of crop failures and droughts, which of course led to famine. It was a bad situation. He says that the flower wars began as a response to the famine. He, and he says, quote, the priests of Mexico or Tenochtitlan said that the gods were angry at the empire and that to placate them, it was necessary to sacrifice many men and that this had to be done regularly, unquote. So, Tenochtitlan and the other allies agreed to engage in ritual war in order to obtain human sacrifices for the gods. Another explanation besides wanting people for human sacrifices was that flower war was a great opportunity to train Aztec soldiers. So the difference between flower war and like normal war were that, um, well, during a flower war, the armies would meet at a pre-selected place on a pre-selected date. They would set a date for the war. They would like text each other. They would put it in their Google calendar. Exactly. They would confirm what type of outfits to wear. Like, are we dressing cute? Are we dressing homeless? Um, how are you doing Just your hair? Cash. What are we doing? Exactly. What is the dress code? Um, so the sites of these battles actually later became sacred sites. 
And during the actual battles, the two sides would signal the start of the war by burning paper and incense. And when they fought, the actual combat was much more a demonstration of honor than like battle strategy. So for example, one thing um, Aztecs were known for, the Mexica were known for, was their range capability in battle, their ability to throw spears. Um, they didn't do that in Flower War. Instead, they used melee weapons like the Makuahuit, I think, which is a wooden club that requires skill and proximity to the enemy. So displaying individual combat ability was very important in these wars. They also used a limited number of soldiers and a greater percentage than usual of these soldiers would be selected from the nobility. It's kind of like, it reminded me of like knights, like a joust almost. Like these, only the nobility should compete like it's it's about your honor and your your lineage and your ancestors and that kind of makes sense to me because like you said there's so much pageantry to the flower wars yeah and um and we talked about like the social mobility really the only way to climb in the ranks um and like mashika culture was to rise in the ranks as a soldier well the higher you rose as a soldier like the more pageantry you got to dress with as a soldier you were a jaguar warrior you were an eagle warrior yeah so these are the guys who were out there decked out in fucking feathers and jaguar skin exactly and the kind of it's like all hand in hand yes and then them giving all that like the really particular descriptions of like all the jewelry and stuff that they gave to Cortez is like, mm-hmm. oh, he's like the Lord of Lords in their mm-hmm. eyes, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, um, so selecting from the nobles and a smaller pool overall of soldiers is had, it had both a ritual aspect of honor And it had a practical aspect that allowed the Mexica to engage in flower war at any given time, whereas they could only fight their big like conquest wars during the farming off season, since so many of their soldiers were farmers. Exactly. Just like the Vikings, we have our farming season, then we have our pillaging season. (laughs) I like to think of like Farmer Bob in my conservative town that like, you just got to wait until that corn's all sown and then we can go out and then I'll next town down. You best believe I'll be kicking your ass. (laughs) Once once I've harvested my fields, I'm coming for you. Exactly. Don't make me get off this tractor. (laughs) Right. Literally. Um, The Mexica considered death in a flower war to be more noble than dying in a typical war, which can be seen in, they have a special term for flower war death, which translates to like blissful death, fortunate death, that kind of thing. Exact same with the Vikings in Valhalla, that type of like, this war dying here that's an extreme honor and flower Um, war itself flower is so associated with like poetry that like that in and of itself it's like a death of like the most poetic kind right and it's a very yeah they're very poetic people Mm -hmm. yes for sure and also 
um, they thought that death in a flower war, those who died in a flower war would be transported to the realm of, how did you pronounce his name? Huitzilopochtli. <laughs> the god of war or whatever. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They thought that those who died in flower war would be like just transported to his realm. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's heavily associated with hummingbirds and like it's a really high honor for like warriors to be reincarnated as hummingbirds so. i didn't know that mm-hmm. that's cool as fuck it's um, just really interesting to me that flower wars our warriors come back as hummingbirds like mm-hmm. it's very fun energy what, yeah it's not what people typically would think of when you have like this really bloody culture they're like nah like Right. This we is- love the tiny little bird and tiny the flower. Bird with the long tongue. <laughs> the long tongue. We're cool. Who just like drinks from the flowers and hangs out. Yeah. Yeah. He's our war god. <laughs> the war god. Yeah. Like what? <laughs> it's so counterintuitive. Yeah. I love it. That's why I love it. Yeah. Same. So because the Tlaxcalan nation is existing in this constant state of war, and is surrounded on all sides by the empire, there's no trade going in or coming out. Tlaxcala Mm -hmm. is completely economically isolated. There's no cotton to make clothes. There's no salt to preserve food, no feathers for arrows, no precious stones. It's not great. Not a lot's going on there. They got to get real like arts and crafts when the flower (laughs) wars come around. (laughs) They're like, my glue stick is out. Do you got one? Hey, can I bum a glue stick, buddy? <laughs> exactly. It's it's tough times in Tlaxcala. And this is the state that they were in when the Spanish conquistadors showed up. In 1519, the nation had a, pop, a population of about 150,000 people in a confederation of four different republics. Each republic had their own... Um, lord judges etc you see the lords get called different things caciques sometimes roughly translating to chief sometimes they're called kings um yeah i don't really know what to call them it's kind of like in germany how they're like margrave or landgrave or whatever the fuck or prince and then um, sometimes you see that they make up titles just so they're slightly more important than the other people with the same titles. Yep. Like um, the guys in charge of uh, Tenochtitlan, they're like, I know that we're supposed to have the same title as all the other people in Triple Alliance, but what if we made ours a little better? <laughs> <laughs> what if we just zhuzhed it up a little, added a little cherry on top? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, our conquistadors, led by Hernán Cortés, first arrived in the city-state of Simpuala, which is right on the Gulf of Mexico, about 250 kilometers east of Tlaxcala. The cacique of Simpuala welcomed the Spanish conquistadors. I think this is the people that you were talking about, um, because their city was under Aztec rule and they did not like that. So they hoped that the Spanish would help them gain gain their independence. And they helped Cortez and his men set up a base in their city. So that was like the first home base of the Spaniards in what would later be Mexico. 
Um, that was in April of 1519, and in June of the same year, Cortez decided that he needed to go see Moctezuma, like you said. The cacique of Simpuala told Cortez, like, hey, buddy, on your way to Tenochtitlan, you're going to pass through Tlaxcala. Those guys are going to want to team up with you. So in August, Cortez set out with his full entourage, which at this point consisted of about 400 Spanish soldiers, 15 horses, 1,300 indigenous warriors, and various artillery. Um, you mentioned cannons. They also had rifles. They had dogs, like you mentioned. Um, very, very intimidating. When they reached Tlaxcalan territory, they were immediately ambushed. I don't really trust Cortez's own records on some of these facts because uh, I feel like a lot of his reporting is exaggerated to make himself look more heroic. But he says that they fought 100,000 Tlaxcalans and won. Which, I mean, they did have crossbows and rifles and cannons, but I feel like 2,000 against 100,000 is still a tiny bit far-fetched like it's like the battle of helm's deep <laughs> which like actually i don't like that analogy because like i don't want cortez to be gandalf <laughs> in this situation also, if you just think of like general like population demographics of like how many people have to be women how many people have to be old age how many people have to be really young like yeah a lot of people yeah that's true that they all just like stormed out there and they're like, we're going to kick this guy's ass. <laughs> right. All of us. Right. Together. But, but they couldn't. No. Right. Um, yeah, maybe they had a bunch of those guys that were like over 100 years old and had to be like <laughs> warmed by fire the whole time or they would just keel over. I don't know. I don't know what was going on in those demographics. Um so anyway, long story short, the Tlaxcalan king Zicotenga, I think, was impressed that the Spanish had won against his soldiers and decided to allow Cortez and his army to pass through the nation. They entered the capital on September 18th and stayed there for 20 days as the soldiers recovered from the battle. Meanwhile, Cortez was just hanging out with King Zicotenga and the other Tlaxcalan leaders who eventually agreed to provide the Spanish with soldiers and provisions to help them take down the Aztec empire. Cortes promised Zigotenga that he was only opposed to the Aztecs and that there would be a place of honor for Zigotenga, a kingdom for him in New Spain once the empire was conquered, which like wink wink, basically. I've seen this alliance between the Spanish and the Tlaxcalans called one of the most important events in Mexican history, because it did eventually lead to the downfall of the entire empire. The partnership actually lasted centuries, um, but I am getting ahead of myself, as I like to do. So Cortes and his army set out from the Tlaxcalan capital about 6,000 warriors came with, indigenous warriors. By the time the army reached Tenochtitlan, Emperor Moctezuma had already heard of the Spaniards, like you mentioned. He'd seen the omens, and the signs were not great. 
So he immediately entered into negotiations with them. They were stroking his hair, like you said. That is not mm-hmm. quite the side of the story that I read. Um, but I'm I... also really interested right now because like, there's no mention of the enemies of the um, Tlaxcalans being slaughtered by the Spaniards like there are in the indigenous story. Right. Yeah, no, I didn't know that at all. Yeah, and they're like, oh no, we just want the Mexica dead. And uh, the Mexica are like, oh no, they like threw other people under the bus. Not just us. Yeah, no, I didn't run across that at all. Yeah, that's why this is really (laughs) cool right now. (laughs) No, I'm trying to figure out why they would lie about that if it is a lie. I, I mean, I doubt it. Like I, what I would think is that maybe the Tlaxcalans were so desperate to get out from under the thumb, like to to take down the blockade surrounding mm-hmm. them, you know, that they that they'd lived in for decades, for a century, and that they didn't care, that they knew probably that these guys were not great news. But like, as long as there's trade, as long as we can, like, move freely again, that that's what I would think. That would be my guess. But I don't know. Yeah, I'm really interested. So negotiations. Yes. Yeah, so they're stroking his hair. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> um, they enter into negotiations. Um, I'm simplifying a lot. Basically, bullet points because I didn't have have time to research every little movement on each side and you you did a lot of it <laughs> honestly I filled in a lot of those gaps so you're you, good. yeah you did um but essentially Cortez decided to take Montezuma Moctezuma as a hostage um and imprison him within his own city that was the narrative that I read was that he was mm-hmm. definitely imprisoned within his own palace for eight yeah. months I think Um, and then Cortez got called away from the city, like you mentioned, um, what was happening, why he had to leave was that the governor of Cuba was trying to arrest him for insubordination. Um, New Spain, like Mesoamerica, Cortez was not supposed to go there in the first place. That, (laughs) that was never supposed to be his realm. He, he kind of just showed up. Um, the emperor of Cuba had like, or not emperor, the governor of Cuba had already laid claim to it, but Cortez just came over. And so the governor wanted to arrest him and had sent, um, Panfilo de Narvaez. And in undergrad, I read the chronicle of the Narvaez expedition, um, by, uh, oh God, what's his name? Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca. And he has a crazy story all by himself. This fucking guy. Okay. So the Narvaez expedition landed in Florida because of a hurricane. They were trying to go to New Spain. They were Spanish. They were trying to go to New Spain um, before Cortez got there. They were trying to beat him there, um, but they shipwrecked in Florida. They all got separated um, Panfilo de Narvaez was the leader of the expedition, um, and the the writer of the chronicle, um, Nunez uh, Cabeza de Vaca. 
he had to walk from Florida to Mexico, <laughs> to Mexico City. And so <laughs> he got left behind. Um, <laughs> and so he's so mad when I got there. He was so mad. <laughs> Funny that you say that. Um, but he has such a fascinating narrative because he's encountering all these different peoples and tribes and they treat him so differently. Some of them worship him as a god. Some of them just beat the shit out of him and leave him for dead. Like, it's so good. It's like, it's, it's like modern storytelling. Like, it's like a Netflix series. It's so good. Anyway, um, the Narvaez expedition was going on at this same time and so uh while he and his men he cortez and his men were off taking care of that situation and away from tenochtitlan um pedro de alvarado who he had put in charge massacred about 600 mexica um like you mentioned so this war breaks out the Spaniards and Tlaxcalans were under siege within the palace in Tenochtitlan. And during the siege, of course, Moctezuma was killed. Um, you can imagine how that calmed everybody down. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. just not good. Um, and At again, one point the codex mentioned, and it didn't, I can't remember when it specifically, but it mentioned the terror in the city, like everyone having taken like hallucinogenic mushrooms, <laughs> like that kind of terror. <laughs> like I can't if everyone even imagine. in the city had simultaneously taken shrooms. Oh God. <laughs> I can't. And I'm sure a lot of people did <laughs> and had <laughs> They're like, it was that sort of chaos. Right. Yes. Because they had gotten along before or at least it seemed to be getting along like obviously it wasn't good but there was no violence yet mm-hmm. and then boom all of a sudden absolute chaos horrifying the new emperor was determined to put a stop to the spanish invasion once and for all on july 1st 1520 um 12 1,250 Spaniards and 5,000 Tlaxcalans attempted to flee the city, but were attacked by the Mexica. 400 of those Spaniards and 4,000 Tlaxcalans were killed. That event is referred to as La Noche Triste, or the Night of Sadness. But the soldiers who did escape were given refuge in Tlaxcala. As they sort of regrouped there, Um, the Tlaxcalans laid out their terms of agreement going forward. If we're going to keep assisting the Spanish, here's what we want in return. We want exemption from paying any kind of tribute ever. We're not going to be your vassals. We're not going to pay taxes to you. We are equals. Um, We also want a share of whatever you gain during the fall of the empire. We want our share of the spoils, our fair share. And we want control of the two provinces that border our land so that there's no chance of any type of blockade ever again. And Cortez agreed to this and actually kept his promise for once. Um, He was not crossing his fingers behind his back as usual. (laughs) Um, He did not act like a fugly slut um, this one time. (laughs) 
Um, Tlaxcala was exempt from tribute for the entirety of Spanish rule in Mexico, which lasted about 300 years after this. So as they're regrouping, Cortez is like, why aren't there Mexica coming after us? Like they could totally like just storm the gates and pretty much take us down. There's so many of them and they kicked our asses. Like we were really struggling there. Um, and it turned out is because of the smallpox epidemic that you mentioned. Um, it had been most likely introduced to the empire by a sailor or sailors from Africa is what I read. I didn't really look into it. It seemed a little bit racist, but <laughs> um, I was like, couldn't the Spanish be just as capable of bringing it? Like, why do we have to randomly throw in Africa? Yeah. <laughs> The uh, Nawat account didn't really say where specifically they it, it had come from, just mm-hmm. had specified that this wasn't the first outbreak, that this okay. had been there for a while, and this was just another outbreak another one. that they were experiencing, and it was inconvenient. Got it. <laughs> inconvenient. That's so mild. <laughs> um, it spread rapidly among the Mexica because of the ways in which they tended to treat illnesses is what I read. Um, basically like the uh, kind of basic cure-all for disease for them was bathing. And um, bathing was often done communally. Um, mm-hmm. As we now know, smallpox spreads via its open sores and water, especially warm water, is a great habitat for the virus. Um, the Spanish, on the other hand, rarely, rarely washed. <laughs> they and were disgusting. They were <laughs> crusty and dusty. <laughs> they were the teenage boys after PE class. Literally. Cover themselves up with axe. God, they I'm sure they stunk so badly. I hated when those boys would like walk past you in the bus when you were like going home at the end of the day. Just that wave of BO for a second. Mm-hmm. Awful. Mm-hmm. Awful. So the Spanish didn't tend to get smallpox as easily because they didn't <laughs> wash. And the Tlaxcalans were blockaded. <laughs> so <laughs> they didn't get it either. <laughs> they were in quarantine. Exactly. They were in an um fuck, what's the word? For when you don't want to do it. <laughs> what's the word? <laughs> involuntary (laughs) they were in an involuntary quarantine quarantine god why was that like pulling teeth i don't know dumber i'm for sure getting dumber (laughs) don't feel bad (laughs) um in may 1521 cortez and 900 of his soldiers along with an estimated max plus colon force of 150,000, marched on tenochtitlan The siege lasted until August 13th of the same year, essentially all the way up until the Mexica were starving, dehydrated, dying of dysentery, like the very last straw. Later historians would estimate that about 240,000 Mexica died in the siege. Of course, many of these were women and children who died of starvation, not just warriors. An estimated 30,000 Spanish and indigenous people died. 
So how did Christianity spread in New Spain and how do we get to the story of the martyrs that I'm going to talk about today? Um, basically, Cortez had done a little bit of his own evangelization along the way. He had brought with him images of the Virgin Mary, for example. He had brought a couple of priests um, who had baptized a few native people here and there, a few caciques, but he knew that he wasn't qualified to start a whole religion on his own. He would need the help of a religious order back in Europe. And the thing was, he wanted a religious order to come take over that aspect of society. He wanted it to be legitimate. He would look better in the eyes of the Spanish crown and the Pope if Catholicism legitimately took hold in New Spain. And it wasn't just like this rabble of like soldiers killing people. Like he, he wanted it to be legit. So he called on, he, he got on his phone and he dialed up the Franciscans and they came over in 1524. There were only 12 missionaries on that first trip. Not a lot, but it did have the significance of the number 12, and it did mark the beginning of the systemic evangelization of what would later be Mexico. So these guys are called the 12 Apostles of Mexico. I looked up your guy, um, Bernardino, that you mentioned, and he's not among these, but you said he's a Franciscan, so I think he came over in the second wave. That's yeah, what I guess. Um, I forget... I feel like it was the late like 1500s. Okay. Like the, the latter half of the 1500s that he came over. So he's after this whole um, story. I feel, I feel it, I don't feel like he came over immediately. Yeah. It was a gap of years. Okay. Um, so these guys are, are called the 12 Apostles of Mexico. The most famous of the 12 was a guy named Toribio de Benevente Modolinia who wrote extensively on the customs of the indigenous people and the ways in which the Franciscans evangelized. So this guy, Motolinia, is a big source and in some cases the only source for a lot of this information. So again, um, grain of salt. The first concentrated evangelization effort took place in the Valley of Mexico and the Valley of Puebla, which were chosen because they were important indigenous settlements. Guess which state is in the Valley of Puebla? Tlaxcala. Hmm. <laughs> our, our guys, Tlaxcala. So I'm going to zoom in on them again since they're the most relevant. One day I'll probably come back and talk about what went on in the rest of New Spain. I definitely have a ton more to talk about in terms of what was happening in other areas of the New World in general. Um, but for now, Tlaxcala only. The main barriers to evangelization of the indigenous people were, number one, the idea that the native people were worshiping false gods, which is like kind of a no-brainer that that would be tough to hear <laughs> from a stranger, that a stranger would show up and tell you that your god is not real. Like, obviously, like that's a barrier. Nobody asked you. Literally um, nobody asked. <laughs> this is where I live. Uh, <laughs> I literally live here. Like, this is my home. 
somebody <laughs> comes into your house and just starts taking all your shit down they're like you now believe in the Aztec god of death <laughs> in this household right like <laughs> that's um, it there's a barrier here I feel like I feel like we skipped a step um yeah not a great way to start and the other big barrier was that there were many different indigenous languages and these languages had great internal variation because the indigenous people did not all live in like city centers or villages there was a lot of farming going on those tiny little farming communities that spoke their own dialect um so one thing that the Spanish government and the church did was herd the indigenous people into cities or towns to cluster them together so that one, the language barrier could be eased, and two, they could be evangelized more efficiently because they could all go to the same church and school, and three, taxes could more easily be collected. So win, win, win. Um, these towns that the Spanish herded people into were known as Pueblos de Indios, or Indian towns. I don't like it. It's not good. It's not my favorite. <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah, it's not good. And then you think about like, okay, we were literally just talking about smallpox and the <laughs> spread of disease. And they're like, what if we put everybody really close together? <laughs> what if we make them kiss? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Playing with Barbies, just like smashing them, their <laughs> naked bodies together. Is that not what we were doing with Cortez and Moctezuma? Look. <laughs> <laughs> what I do in the privacy of my own imagination <laughs> is between me and God. <laughs> or me and the Aztec God of Death. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so Pueblos de Indios are not good, but it's what they did. And then in 1537, we get a decree from Pope Paul III that tells us, hey, you guys over there in New Spain and other places that are colonizing people, guess what? Indigenous people are people. They should not be enslaved. They have souls too, just like us. And it is our job to save those souls. So they started out so strong. Mm -hmm. They're people too. They're just really flawed and we need to save them. They're people too. Like, yay. But there are like redheaded stepchildren. <laughs> the most backhanded compliment of all time. It's the old alley-oop. It's like, can I go back to being not a person? Right. I'd rather <laughs> not like be a that's person. Better. Right. <laughs> Yeah, but it's, that's how it goes. Like, it's like, okay, we're, we're advanced enough to know that he, a human being is a human being with a soul, but we're not advanced quite enough to get to the point where like, we aren't just, xenophobic, just leave people alone. Like we're not at that point yet. And no. I don't, Will we ever be? no, <laughs> I don't think so. Not until no. like, everybody is like brown and queer. Yeah which maybe like 2000 years from now can't wait <laughs> hopefully that's we'll before there. the inevitable heat death of the universe <laughs> yeah ideally maybe it's yeah hopefully before like the oceans swallow the continents but right that that's our goal so the pope says 
it's time to evangelize, not enslave. And boom, the Franciscans are like, okay, what if, hear me out, we combine the pueblos de indios with the churches that we're building so that things are even more centralized. And that's how we get the concept of the mission church or convento. This does a couple things. It releases a lot of indigenous people from slavery. It also creates a huge influx of missionaries from Europe because now these missionaries are seeing that this is a legit opportunity. These people are not savages. They're capable of reason. And we want to harvest their souls for our religion to boost our numbers. A lot of scary words you just said. Yep. I'm, I'm not sugarcoating. Well, I'm trying not to. <laughs> no. Because it too often is sugarcoated mm-hmm. in the Catholic sources. And so I've had a lot of experience now. I've had 50 episodes worth of experience reading through the lines. What does this word mean in historical terms and not like dogmatic terms, you know? Mm-hmm. So like the light of salvation, what does that really mean? That means the the opportunity for colonization. Um, Yeah, so some of these sources are so cringe. They're like, oh, the the light of Jesus was even then still in the dark heart of Mexico. It's like, you guys are trying to recruit with this language? You're trying to get (laughs) people to join? That's silly. Like, that's just silly. This is like a modern source. This is 2022. I'm going to show up with that mindset. Yeah. Um, so now we get not only more Franciscans, but we get Dominicans, we get Augustinians, and even the baby Jesuits. Their order had just been founded like three years ago, but they come over too. They can barely and crawl. Like, We're here. <laughs> like, hello, I'm the main character. The Jesuits always think they're the main character. Um, Mm -hmm. and they usually are to be fair (laughs) in, um, a bad way. Most of the time, um, they, yeah, they can barely crawl, (laughs) but no excuses for the Jesuits. They do not take no for an answer. That's what makes them so scary. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about our martyrs. The primary source for their lives and martyrdom was written by that guy I mentioned earlier, one of the 12 apostles, uh, Motolinia. He wrote it in 1539. The first martyr was named Cristobal or Christopher. He was born in either 1514 or 1515 in, I could not find a pronunciation for this at all. I would guess Aliwetsia which was a village in Tlaxcala. His father was named Ascotecat, just to guess. Couldn't find that one either. I've seen his father called a cacique and also called just generally a high-ranking Tlaxcalan nobleman. So I don't know for sure if he was actually a chief, um, but he was a big deal. Cristobal also had three brothers, He was baptized at the age of 12 to 14, not sure, by the Franciscans at the very first school the Twelve Apostles founded. Motolinia calls him Cristobalito in the text, Little Christopher. Cristobalito was his father's favorite son, so of course his father was unsure about sending him to the Franciscan school, but the Franciscans and Cristobal's brothers eventually convinced him. 
And Cristobal became devout very quickly, the way that certain kids tend to do. Um, I'm not sure if it's like, I just want like the cool older people to think I'm a good kid or some kids just seem, they just jump right in. They dive in head first. I was that way as a child. Um, And I had forgotten that I was that way until I was maybe 14 or 15. And I discovered a bunch of really old diaries that I kept. That you were like, I'm on fire for Jesus or whatever. I wrote songs about About... how much I loved Jesus. No way. I am not fucking kidding you. I didn't even do that. Songs. Wow. Can you sing us a little sample? I would rather kill myself. Okay, moving on. (laughs) Don't do that. Um, I was not that way. I became that way in the beginning of high school and stayed that way for like two years. And then it kind of like, like a wildfire, it burnt itself out. And I became a lot more rational about it. Wildfire is kind of exactly how I would describe, like, how I was as a kid. Um, But yeah, Cristobal was on fire for the Lord. And he brought this new religious fervor home with him. His father ignored it for a while, even though it was super annoying. Cristobal would pour out his father's pulque, which was an alcoholic drink made from the agave plant. So your kids going around pouring out all your liquor um, in the name of Jesus. <laughs> it's kind of a buzzkill. <laughs> um, but Cristobal's father drew the line when Cristobal started breaking indigenous religious items around the house. I don't know exactly what they were. I'm thinking probably like statues um when he did that and kept on doing it that was the last straw um so his father held a feast for the family he summoned all of his sons to the feast and at one point he asked the other sons to leave the room so that he and Cristobal could have a little chat they could talk in private Um, At that point, he dragged Cristobal by the hair to his bedroom and beat him with a club, um, telling him he needed to give up his new religion. He needed to come back to his native beliefs. Um, Cristobal refused and continued to refuse. um, So his father beat him until his limbs were broken And then when he still would not agree, his father burned him over a bonfire. Cristobal died the next morning of his injuries. The text also said that his father killed Cristobal's mother when she tried to intervene. Again, this is written by one of the 12 apostles of Mexico, one of the Franciscan friars. Um, So... There's no, there's no doubt that these kids existed. There's evidence that they did exist. But what I kept thinking was, how did he know what happened in that room? How could he have known unless the father admitted to everything, which I kind of doubt. 
So, I mean, anyway, he killed his son. And he buried Cristobal's remains in the house, but he was quickly found out by the Spaniards and sentenced to death. Cristobal's remains were exhumed by a Franciscan friar and reburied in a place of honor. The other two martyrs, there are three total. The other two were Antonio and Juan from the village of Tisatlan in Tlaxcala. They were both born about two years after Cristobal. Antonio was the son of a nobleman and was also educated at the Franciscan school and became very devout. Juan was Antonio's servant. The two of them became translators for the Franciscans and also similar, similarly to Cristobal began their own um, iconoclasm around town. They started desecrating um, native religious symbols and effigies. Um, they were caught in 1529 when they were 12 or 13. Juan was caught outside someone's home and murdered while Antonio was inside destroying um, items in the house, I believe. Antonio came outside and saw Juan, his servant, dead and asked the townspeople who were there why they had killed him. And the townspeople said that he'd been seen destroying religious artifacts. And Antonio said, actually, I'm the one who's been doing that. He's just my servant. He was only doing that at my command. And so the townspeople murdered Antonio as well. <laughs> He's like, that my friend. Ah, uh, damn it. <laughs> uh. <laughs> I said the quiet part out loud. <laughs> yep. Um, probably should have been like, oh yeah, get him. <laughs> Thank God you guys took care of him or I would have really, mm. <laughs> That really grinds my gears when people do that. He like kicks the broken statue like behind his back. It's really not funny. Um, no. <laughs> it's it's not it's it's not it's not good to laugh at. Um, but you have to, which is what we do on the show. The two boys' bodies were apparently thrown off a cliff, but were later recovered by a Dominican friar and also reburied. So the canonization process for the three child martyrs of Tlaxcala, which is their official name, was begun on January 7th, 1982 by Pope John Paul II. In 1990, he confirmed after the church's investigation concluded that the teenagers had indeed been killed in odium fide, which means in hatred of the faith, which is what constitutes a martyr. Not just any Catholic can be a martyr. They have to specifically be killed in hatred of the faith, which is why, like, if you remember long ago talking about the Scottish guy, John Ogilvy, who was like going crazy hallucinating because he'd been kept up for nine days. Mm -hmm. um, and the Protestant guy was like, just to be clear, write down for posterity. We are not killing you for your faith. We're killing you because you won't suck King James's dick. Like that was for a very specific reason so that he would not be able to become a saint, which obviously backfired because um, he, he, said, he said the quiet part out loud, <laughs> which was of course that, of course he was killing him because he was Catholic. Um, so... Yes, they were confirmed to have been killed in Odium Fide, um, and Pope John Paul II beatified the three boys on May 6th, 
May 6, 1990, during a visit to Mexico City. Pope Francis has also spoken openly about his closeness to these particular martyrs and how he has worked on the canonization process. Um, I mentioned this, like, I think in episode one and never since, but in cases of confirmed martyrdom, the church is able to bypass the miracle requirement for canonization. So the three martyrs were canonized without any miracles on March 23rd, 2017. Throughout history, opinion of the state of Tlaxcala has shifted back and forth. For most of history, they were seen as these traitors to Mexico because they had helped the Spanish conquer it. Um, but more recently, that view has shifted and has been deemed like a little bit unfair because Mexico wasn't a thing at the time. Um, and many different indigenous people were at odds with each other. So some see this stigma as unfair. Like there's no reason to call these people traitors when our country didn't exist yet. They couldn't be traitors to anything because it didn't they exist. Also no way of knowing that the Spanish were going to stick around. There are these weirdos that showed up and left and showed up and left, just like the other weirdos in the parts of the con continent that did the exact same thing. Exactly. Um, like, it's so easy to say, looking back, like in hindsight, that they shouldn't have done that. But it's they like, kind of just planned on using them to like get rid of people. And they're like, all right, uh, by springtime, they'll be gone. <laughs> we win. And then um, we win. Exactly. And then the Spanish are like, we live here now. And they're like, this is tough. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I think that um, opinion is sort of more um, generous now. The child martyrs are honored on September 23rd and are the patrons of Mexican children and those ridiculed for their faith, which we see a lot with um, young martyrs like Catherine of Siena. One of her things is like people ridiculed for their faith. It's just kind of like a catch-all. Um, like other martyrs, they're often depicted carrying palm branches. On October 4th, 2020, the 495th anniversary of the founding of the state of Tlaxcala, a statue of the three martyrs was unveiled by the bishop of the diocese. In his statement, he called the martyrs the best children that Tlaxcala has had, a model of life and holiness, not only for our people, but for the universal church. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. It's so funny to me sometimes, especially when it comes to martyrs, when I hear, like, what they've been martyred for, and then, like, how they're, like, saints anyway. Yeah. Because um, it's like, we have these three teenage boys who, like, these boys who just broke some shit, um, and then <laughs> we decided to make them saints. They poured out their father's liquor. And they busted up some statues. Yeah, the, the patron saint of uh, B&E's over here. We love them so much. <laughs> we love them. And that's why I kind of think it's so funny, like the Catholic like pearl clutching about like um, people who are desecrating statues of um, colonizer saints, like Saint mm -hmm. Junipero Serra. Um, who I almost talked about today, but I decided to leave that um, for if we ever talk about like California. But it's like, you know that we did that, like we invented that. 
<laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> you literally took these three kids and you're like, they are the perfect examples of what children should We be. uphold them as like, like we gave them the highest possible honor. And or now we're destroying other people's shit. Right. And now we're like all butthurt that people are exposing the real history of what we did to indigenous people and Mm -hmm. doing the same thing that we did back then. Like it's, come on, we need to, (laughs) we need to look in the mirror. And sometimes a statue is just a statue. Oftentimes a statue is just a statue. Yeah. (sighs) I feel like we've been talking for five years. It's, uh, it's been a couple of hours. Has it not? Uh, It has. Yeah, it's been three hours. Let's do a quick wrap up. (laughs) Because my butt is so numb. (laughs) Yeah, this was a lot. Today was a lot. Um, But we learned so much, I think. Your story was so good. You had so many direct quotes. I felt like I was there. Uh... I liked getting to learn about all of the things that I read. I liked getting to learn more about um, the uh, Talashkalans um, mm-hmm. because I paid like next to no attention to them in my story. They were just like a small little sidetrack on the way of getting back to talking about the Mexica um, yeah. and Cortez. So it's nice that we got to swing back and I actually got to learn a more like sympathetic view um of them um and then to also see what they kind of look like afterward and how they were still kind of struggling um because it really sucks that you know they were caught up in these like, blockades and flower wars and then they turn around and then they have to deal with like being colonized yep i don't and know it's... if at any point they ever won <laughs> i don't know either the thing about like yeah we were the reason that three of your children were brutally murdered. We are the sole reason that those kids were brutally murdered. Oh, but we made them cute little saints. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that counts. I don't, I don't know if that's good enough. I, I'm not sure either. It's so complicated and it's so interesting for that reason. Yeah. Uh, yeah there's just so many parts of both of our stories all of our stories together that there's just so much complexity to it that you really could just sit down and pick it apart for like days I think I'm going to like in my brain like involuntarily it's just gonna happen in my brain I'll be like oh my god (sighs) I feel like we got a pretty rounded picture though Yeah, I think we got a a pretty rounded picture, especially of like the really small set of years in a very small area. Yeah. Um, And it's very rare that we get to do that, um, be in like the exact same place in the exact same time span of years. Yeah. Super rare. We're like, oh, well, guess what? I'm skip forward 200 years. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I like that we didn't suck Cortez's dick at all. I feel yeah. good about that. Fuck I that feel guy. like we didn't, he's not the main character in today's stories. No, he can suck his own dick. <laughs> I wonder if he could add it to the fanfic. <laughs> <laughs> Some people can. <laughs> they can. <laughs> I'm jealous. <laughs> I wish I could suck my own dick. <laughs> <laughs> Ew. Uh... <laughs>
end the episode already. Good call. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. We hope you might consider coming back next time. (laughs) After that. Um, And yeah, see you next time. Thanks be to God. Blessed be. Thank you.